Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Chatting to Australians flying the flag in the US of A, this is the Flag Flyers. Hello everyone and welcome to the Flag Flyers, the place where we profile and chat about all the Aussies flying the flag for us in the US of A. I'm Christopher Tyler, flying solo today, Lockie Miller taking the week off, but we are continuing our Aussies in profile series today and we have someone that uh, pretty much every SEN listener would know of. You can hear him every weeknight from 47 alongside the great David Schwartz. He's the former 177th ranked golfer in the world <laughs> and apparently the number one out of bunkers as well. It is Mark Allen. Marco, welcome to the Flag Flyers. Christos, I'm glad to be here. I'm a big fan of the show. Oh, that's why you kept hustling me to be on the show for the last <laughs> couple of weeks. You heard that we were doing this Aussies in Profile series. We had a chat to Nathan Chapman last yeah. week. Were they the week before? I think those guys just told you how fun they had, so you just decided Mate, to come on the show. You and I both know why I got the call up. There's not much <laughs> happening in US sport at the moment. You need it's a really fill, not. which is fine. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to talk about that US college uh, system. Well, a lot of people that I went know. through. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people would have known that you went to Texas Tech, but a lot of people probably don't know the details about how you got there and all that mm. sort of stuff. So we do want to get into that in a little bit, but first I wanted to start from the start and pretty much just learn about how you first got interested in golf, what drew you to the sport, and, and at what age did you kind of get into it? Uh, look, mum and dad were always golfers, so, um, you know, dad was a terrific player. He, he, you know, got to a stage where the country week in, in Victoria used to be a very big week, so it used to be different country regions from Victoria. Where they'd all come together and they'd um, play match play against each other in a team format, and dad, dad used to go through that undefeated. I think he went through it undefeated twice. So dad could really play. Uh, as an amateur golfer, and and mum, he taught mum how to play as well. So mum got hooked as well, and uh, she ended up winning a, a club championship up in Shepparton. So mum and dad were from Shep. They came down, and dad was always a member at Huntingdale as a junior, and uh, they were you know great golfers and loved you know the the, the golf club type life. Um, so I was exposed to golf very early, but for a long, long time, and everybody laughs when I say this. I thought I was going to be a footballer, Christos. <laughs> I knew you'd laugh. So for a long time. I really did believe I was a I was a footballer. Wanted to play the Collingwood when you were older. Yeah, yeah. Who yeah. used to dabble in golf? <laughs> and um, so, yeah, what age did that change? What when did uh, you kind of realise that you probably weren't the footballing type? Well, Mum entered me because I always played. Mum, you know, it was school holidays. Mum just entered me in a, in the the under fourteen championships, uh, which used to be something called the Shell Schoolboys. So, Mum told me she'd entered me, and I'd never played in a tournament before. I'd never really even played golf club events before. So. Um, you know, school holidays, and uh, I wasn't playing cricket that particular year. So I just decided to practice. So I was hitting 500, 600 golf balls a day in a bid not to make a fool of myself in the under-14 <laughs> so championships. that was your goal. It wasn't to win. It was just to not make a fool of yourself. Fear of failure <laughs> is the number one driver in most people's lives. Excellent. I think you'll find. So I, I didn't want to fail, and uh, so I started hitting, like I said, I was hitting 400, 500 golf balls a day, and I'd... Mum would take me to, to golf after work, and so was Dad there for a little while. So I was playing nine holes here and there, but basically just riding my bike and, and getting kicked off every single sports oval in Doncaster <laughs> at the time. 
Anyway, time came. He had three chances to qualify for the final. So the, I think he shot 95 the first go around, which wasn't too bad for me. And then maybe 97 at Centenary Park, which wasn't very good at Centenary Park. Uh, and then the last qualifying was somewhere else, and I managed to shoot 88 or 85. I can't even remember. Uh, that got me into the final at Woodlands. Now, Woodlands is a really tough golf course. And Mum decided to caddy for me, which was a big deal, you know, because Mum could play. Yep. So she was pointing me around the golf course that she knew. Uh, I ended up shooting 88 and getting into a playoff. Now, can you imagine two 13-year-old kids that are in a playoff? I mean, just share the medal for goodness sakes. But I got in the playoff with a kid called Reese Hoff. I even remember the guy's name. And uh, I ended up winning the playoff on the third hole of sudden death. Can oh. Imagine You can't imagine two 14-year-olds or 13-year-olds playing sudden death these no. days. So that was great. Anyway, so I've come home and we used to live in Doncaster. Like I said, we had a pool in the back and that was all done in the morning. Anyway, I came home and I was having a swim. And Dad came home, and he was, you know, he was always a, a part of the football team or football club. You know, he was a, a coach at my younger days, and yeah, Dad was football. Yeah. And he came around the corner. I'm in the pool. And he said, "Well, well, well, Mark Allen's the best under fourteen golfer in the state." Oh. So that second, from that moment, I went from not even being, you know, in the top two or three footballers in my under fourteen team. To being in the top number, you know, I was convinced, you know, that's right. That was the under-14 championship Victoria, and I won it. I'm the best in the state. So from that second, I went from not even, like I said, not even being in the best footballer in my team mm. to being the best foot, the, the best golfer in the state. And it was the belief that I gained just from that, from that uh, experience. And, you know, from that on... I worked twice as hard, and I won the next year. I won the under 15 Championship Victoria as well. And then, you know, after that, things just really took off. And finally, I ended up getting into the um, the, the state team back in the day, back in 1986. Um, used to be under 21, the junior state team. So I managed to get into the under six. I managed to get into the under 21 state team when I was 16 years old. And then I really believed that uh, my life was going to be in golf, even though I kept on playing footy until the under-17s. So I used to get in a bit of trouble for But that. you'd given up the belief that you'd be a footy player. Surely, no, no, no. That was, that was done and dusted. Like I said, I wasn't even the best player in my team. Yeah. So I've gone from, you know, the, the, just, you know, it's amazing what you think when you're a kid. When you're a kid, you know, if things, things have a massive impact in your life, little things like that, and even though, you know, I just won a tournament, you know, until Dad came around the corner and told me that, wasn't this a That's tournament, mate? Yeah. Wasn't this a tournament? That was the under championship. That was the under fourteen championship of Victoria. Mm. You're the best. It just clicked. Anyway, so it was golf for me from that point onwards. And so that's when it all changed for you, I guess. But um, what kind of what, what did you love about the sport? So what, what, when you were growing up, why did you decide to play so much? Was there anything about the game that you just yeah. loved, and why you kept going back? Yeah, it was. Uh, one of the reasons that I wasn't playing cricket that year, like I said before, is that uh, I couldn't bat. I was a good bowler, but I couldn't bat. So, you know, you'd go out there and you know, I'd be eighth or ninth drop. Sometimes you wouldn't even get a bat. Mm. But with golf, I felt like I could bat all day. Right. If you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it was all about me, which was great. <laughs> you know, when you're playing sport, you want to play. Yeah. And I, you, you don't know, have to sit on the bench. I don't want to sit on the bench. So, you know, if, if, if I wasn't bowling, because I was a leg spinner, so if I wasn't bowling, I was just standing around the outfield, it seemed. And if I wasn't batting... I was sitting on the bench, so cricket was no good. Yeah, that sounds like my career. Cricket right? was no good for me, so I, it was great to be able to play a sport where I batted all day, and that's what it felt like. And and you know, and, and once you get to you know, Huntingdale Golf Club uh, when you're a little kid, you know, you get there and the grass is cut beautifully, and they played the Australian Masters there, and 
Yeah, mum and dad ended up divorcing, and mum moved right across the road from Huntingdale Golf Club. And that was the second real nail in the coffin. Once I went with mum, and we lived across the road, and I was getting up at five o'clock every morning, um, throwing the golf clubs and the golf bag over the fence in my school bag. <laughs> uh, I'd throw all the golf balls. There was a little hole. Uh, the, it used to be the 17th. It ended up being the 15th hole as a par three. I'd throw all my golf balls in the bunkers, and I'd just hit bunker shots until... Um, it got light enough to hit balls, then I would hit balls, uh, and then I would get the bus to school, then I'd wag at lunchtime and come back and, and keep on practicing till late. So I, was, I, I don't think I had the most uh, talent, but I certainly, I, I know that I, I outworked everybody to get to the level I got to. Were you a fan of golf? Did you actually watch a lot of golf and look oh, up yeah. to certain players and, and say, I want to yeah. be like this guy? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, uh, Ben Hogan was... Uh, Ben Hogan was the, the most famous worker in the game. And then David Graham, probably not too far behind him. He just just got uh, into the World Golf Hall of Fame. David Graham, he won a couple of majors in the States, the USPGA and the US Open. And Lee Trevino. So th- those sort of three players, even though I'd never seen Ben Hogan play, I never, never even saw him swing. There was no YouTube back in 86, Christos. So I never even saw him swing. But just, you know, just reading books and, and, and hearing the stories about how players outworked one another and got to where they wanted to go. Yeah, David Graham, the guy who just got into the World Golf Hall of Fame, he turned professional as a left-hander. And his, you know, the, his boss convinced him to be a right-hander. And you know, to do that and to win two majors, you know, I really believe that if you worked hard enough as a sports person, then uh, the world's your oyster. So I went on that venture. And, and you know, the more, that I, the more you invested into the, into the sport, the more work that I did, um, and I wasn't going to surrender anytime soon, mm. if you know what I mean. I think yeah. uh, you, you've just, you know, I couldn't fail at that stage. I worked so hard and sacrificed so much without a plan B, mind you, no plan B. Yeah. Just, this is this is one direction. Then because I invested so much into that work, then then yeah, there was a real fear fear of failure at, at, at that point. So what was going to be the plan of attack? Because obviously at this stage you hadn't come to the conclusion that you were going to go to uh, college because that was yeah. – I assume that wasn't even an option. I assume that wasn't nah. even something that you knew about. It wasn't even on the horizon, So mate. what was going to be the plan of attack? So you, you, you win your first championship or it might have been once you were 16 or 17. What yeah. were you going to do? What was the traditional yeah. route to become a professional I'll, at that stage I'll, of your career? I'll tell you, I was going to turn pro. I was going to ditch the last year of school and yep. turn pro. So I ditched the last year of school. So I did year 11, finished up at Oakley Tech. Not a fine – uh, educational development <laughs> type of area, Oakley Tech. Uh, but I abandoned that, and uh, I was just waiting to turn pro. And then, out of the blue, Christos, out of the out of the out of the clear blue sky, I was just sitting at home one day, and my phone rang. And you know, it was uh, probably at the end of March uh, of my HSC year. And I hadn't been going to school, and the phone rang, and I picked it up and said hello. And this guy on the other end of the phone said, "Is that you, Mark?" I said, yep. He said, this here is Coach Tommy Wilson, and I want you to play for me, son. And, and I thought no it, idea what he was, talking I about. Thought it was a joke. <laughs> I thought it was a joke, you know. Canon Camera was a big show back in those days, sure. and I'm looking around <laughs> trying to work out what the hell's going on. And he kept on talking, and then he told me how he found me. And there used to be a show called World of Sport a long time ago on yep. Sunday mornings. Colin Long was... Uh, an ex-Davis Cup player, uh, but he used to do the golf segment. Colin Long's son, um, Steve Long, 
uh, many, many, a hundred years ago, the coach from Texas Tech was out playing the sandbelt courses and Steve Long put his hand up to play with the coach of Texas Tech, you know, 1960 version of him. And um, the coach liked Steve and offered, offered him a scholarship. So Steve ended up marrying, went to Texas Tech and married a, a Lubbock girl. And uh, the golf coach, you know, Tommy Wilson, he wasn't more, he was more the bus driver and recruiter. So he uh, didn't have anyone to recruit this year. So he he spoke to Colin, uh, Steve Long and Steve said, uh, oh, the best I can do is I'll call home and see if there's any players at home for you. So he called his dad. His dad called his dad called the VGA, which is the Victorian Golf Association. It's now Golf Victoria. And said, hey, listen, uh, are there any good young players who want to come over to Texas Tech? So they looked through the books and they said, look, Mark Allen has just won a couple of Open Championships, Open Amateur Championships. Uh, won the Q Open Amateur in 85 and the Rosebud Open Amateur as as a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old. And... Uh, um, they put my name forward and just handed my phone number over to to Colin, and Colin sent it to Steve, and Steve handed it back to Coach Tommy Wilson, who gave me a call. So then, how long until you actually made your way over? And what? Well, he, what did they explain to you about what to expect? Did they say anything about what to expect from that trip? Because I assume at that stage, no one really knew how big college yeah, was right in the right, states well, at that stage. The best thing happened not long after that phone call. During that phone call, the best thing happened during that phone call because I told. Coach Tommy Wilson, I was going to turn pro. He said, you can't do that if you want to come here. you got to finish school. And I said, well, it's March. You know, school's already been going for two months. He said, kid, you got to finish school. So I called a guy called Tony Bibby, who was a, a mathematics teacher at uh, at Oakley Tech, and said, Tony, here's, this is my opportunity to get out of here, you know. I need to get out. I need, I need to get out of this situation that I was in because I had no, like I said, I had no plan B. And he mm-hmm. said, Sit with me. So he made a phone call to Holmes Glen College of TAFE, and somehow he got me in that year. So then I worked my bum off uh, school-wise and kept on practicing all night and all day um, and uh, ended up getting my HSC, passed the SAT uh, tests. Do they still have SATs? I think they might. They used to be called SATs yeah, back, yeah. In, back in my day. Um, passed the SATs. And the next thing I knew, I was I was signing a form um, of my letter of intent to go to Texas Tech. So they got me over early, and and that was that. It was unbelievable. Who came and met you at the airport when you went over? Uh, well, uh, well, look again back in back in those days. I hate it's, it's, I hate saying that, but it is thirty years ago. Yeah. So it was a long trip. My flight went from Melbourne to New Zealand, New Zealand to Hawaii, Hawaii to LA, LA wow. to Dallas, and Dallas then to Lubbock. So it took me 36 hours to get there, and Coach Tommy Wilson was there, and, and Steve Long, um, Colin Long's son. So they met me at the airport, and um, you know it was during summer school, so I went over there in July, so it was during summer school, and I remember the first thing I saw was Pat Cash winning the... <laughs> Wimbledon, so that was big. So I was a hero just for being Australian nice. at one stage uh, in, at the summer school. Um, but I'll never forget, mate. They, you know, so I'm meeting there, and I don't know anybody in the whole school. And some kids said, "Hey, we'll take you out tonight." And I said, "Yeah, that'd be great." They said, "Come, do you like country and western?" And I said, "Well, I've heard of it before." And they said, "We'll go to a country and western bar and really show you what's, what it's like." So we get there. This country and western bar is just called Cowboys, like every place <laughs> is called. And we get in there. It's all kids my age. They've all got 10-gallon hats on, the biggest belt buckles you've ever seen, and the big boots. 
And I thought it was a fancy dress party. You know, <laughs> I really did. I really did. And the DJ was in the middle of this like racetrack that they were just two-stepping around, which is how you dance in the country sure. music in the States. And I just didn't know what was going on. I mean, I was laughing and having a good time, but I just didn't believe it. Um, and then the music stopped and the DJ who was an African-American DJ, he said, Hey, guys, does anybody want to hear some rock and roll? And I thought, beautiful. Here we go. Now we'll be right. And the whole lot of them, Christos, the whole lot of them stopped and said, F no. <laughs> they, and it was at that point in time where I knew I was somewhere very, very different. It's like the scene in uh, Blues Brothers. We like both kinds of music, country and western. <laughs> it, was, it was exactly that kind of bar, mate. So... You know, they couldn't understand me. I couldn't understand them. Um, and you know, before you know, before you knew it, I, I, I was away. You know, I was away playing. I was away playing in tournaments that uh, you know I'd never played that that level before. I mean, as a sixteen-year-old, I, I qualified for a Tasmanian Open, yep. which was big. It was a big tournament. And that was at uh, Royal Hobart Golf Club, and I came back here and qualified for the Vic Open as well when I was sixteen. Those tournaments were huge, huge tournaments played on really good golf courses. When I got to the States, um, we had guys like Robert Gomez shooting 63 at Bear Creek at a golf course that was much tougher than Yarra Yarra or Royal Hobart. And I, I just couldn't believe the different level. So professional golf in the States versus what I was doing over there. So the Vic Open and, and the Tassie Open, they were great for my confidence as a, as a 16-year-old. But then I got over there and, you know, I, was, I ended up getting on the team pretty easily because five-man team, you had to qualify. But, you know, if you were good enough, you didn't have to qualify. Sure. So then I was in the picked in the team every single week after that. So we'd play, you know, seven tournaments a semester and they were high quality, you know, Bob Estes winning with 19 under par on a good golf course type Type tournaments. So Bob Estes went on to have a great, you know, US tour career. Robert Gomez, you know, had a had a really good career. No good anymore, but he had a fantastic career. So, you know, John Daly was was just finishing up when I started. Every tournament that he played in, you know, it was crazy what was going on. Either he got drunk and took the team bus, or he wrecked his hotel room, or he knocked it on a par five, par four in one drive, in one shot that was undrivable. So all these things were happening, you know. All these things were happening, and the level of your game just goes through the roof, absolutely through the roof, just because you are now expected. You know, 75 is not a good score anymore. Exactly. We're back here, 75. You know, I was qualifying. I qualified in the Tassie Open with a 75. So things change really quick. So not only did you have to adapt to the way you played your golf, but you also had to adapt to becoming a student at Texas Tech in a country that you've never been to before. One of my favorite stories that I heard from you is mm. you, one of your first classes when you were in an American history class, I think it was. Do you want to tell That's us it. about what happened uh, in your first American history class? Because I love this story. Uh, well, I, I found out really quickly that uh, most of the classes you had to make an oral presentation over there. So the Australian accent gets you about a 20-minute head start in most <laughs> in most situations, including chicks. Good. Right? So, but if, if you're an idiot or if they don't like you, then they don't like you. It doesn't matter what you're, what you're talking like. But the 20-minute head start was fantastic for those uh, oral presentations because, you know, no matter what you said, it was fascinating to these, you know, schmoes from West Texas. They didn't, you know, they, you'd watch the, seriously, you'd watch the news over there, Lubbock, Texas, and say, world news tonight. 
right? So you'd watch the world news, and then after that, there was international news. Right? Oh, no. <laughs> so you know, they didn't know what was going on. I was telling people I was from Australia, and you know, during they the day, ride there. Or no, like no, no, they were asking me, um, "Do you speak good English?" and all, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. So they didn't know what was going on. So when I, you know, when I spoke, it's not an English accent. Yeah, it's I don't know how much South has African, changed either. That's the problem. It's not a South African accent. Um, they don't know what's going on. So no matter what you did, you got that twenty minute head start. So you got you got better at speaking in front of people. So American history was the second semester, and it was seventeen seventy six to eighteen seventy six. And you know it would be. I didn't know. I didn't know our history. You know, I didn't know Australian history, let alone U.S. history. And they started talking about FDRs, which is again, it's a Franklin Del Roosevelt. So when they're talking about all the presidents, so FDR this and FDR that. And I'd had enough at that stage, but I also knew that the accent worked a treat. (laughs) So in the three hundred people auditorium, I put my hand up and said, "Hey, uh, buddy, what's an FDR?" (laughs) And the whole joint. You know, it started laughing. He said, where are you from? And I said, Australia. He said, come see me after class. Um, anyway, so Did class, you think you were in trouble at this point? Or did yeah, you yeah I, I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to think. I, you could get in trouble. Over there. I, you know, you Especially when you're an athlete. Do, I wasn't doing much. Yeah, when you, when yeah. you're an athlete, it's different rules. We'll get to that in the team. Exactly. Different rules. I've got it on my sheet, ready to go. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, I get down there after this, uh, the first uh, history class, and the boss, uh, the teacher goes, um, see... You don't know what FDR is? I said, Who's our Prime Minister? And he said, Good point. So he, he said, didn't know who the Australian He said, Why are you here? Why are you here? And I told him that I was here to play golf. He said, Oh, I'm a golfer. I'm a member out at Hillcrest Country Club. And I said, Oh, nice. He said, Yeah, I'm here to play golf and I haven't, I haven't played Hillcrest yet. And, you know, some small talking. Anyway, one second later, he goes, Hey, listen, um, don't worry about turning up anymore. <laughs> I said, okay. He goes, I'll, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you, the uh, sports uh, boss, and we'll sort it out. So the sports boss, sports boss uh, came and got me at the cafeteria, and he said, um, I heard you had some trouble in history today. And I said, uh, yeah, I don't know what happened uh, in the last 200 years here. And he said, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't go to class, and we'll fix it up. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that meant. I, know, I knew you had to do 12 hours yep. a week. And that uh, was three hours, but I was doing 15 hours that uh, semester. So I just thought I'd still get my 12 hours in. I'd still be eligible uh, to compete. You know, I wasn't redshirting my first year. Yep. Uh, so I, I, I was I was straight through. Anyway, uh, the, the, you get your grades at the end of the semester coming into Christmas. And American History Part 1, A+. Plus. <laughs> A plus. They gave Very me an A nice. plus. So I immediately went in, did the second half with the same teacher. Nice. And uh, I didn't put my hand up <laughs> and ask what an FDR was, but I went down and saw him after class. He said, you again? He goes, don't worry about it, Mark. <laughs> well, they, everyone used to call me mate. Everyone, the whole school called me mate. So even he knew, even he knew, because I was playing well and, you know, the, the school papers were there and I was winning college tournaments uh, at the end of my first semester. So he knew who I was and it was always Mark, mate, Allen. Right in the papers, so I went and saw him for day one of the uh, second one. He goes, "Hey mate, don't even worry about it. Don't even worry about it. I got you covered." Did you get that same treatment from other teachers? No, that was the only one. That was the only one. But 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 in saying that, Christos, even though I went to Oakley Tech, and even though you know I I did, I was more of an applied science person. I couldn't. I'm not a very good speller or reader. And seriously, back. I, I really reckon that I had the, uh, what's it called? Uh, um, Which one, ADD or something no, like no, that? No, 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 not that one. 
dyslexia. I, re- oh, I reckon right. I was dyslexic. Oh, okay. I reckon I was. I reckon I was because I couldn't read. I couldn't write. Right. I was hopeless. But maths and chemistry and physics. You're fine. No worries. You know, it all made sense. So I was able to do it. Um, so their classes, their maths classes, it was a joke. You know, it was college level maths. And it was stuff that I'd learned Oakley Tech and Form 4. And even the English stuff, you know, that was pretty easy. It was pretty easy. It, everything was handwritten. So I used to get someone to handwrite stuff for me and the rest was easy. The rest was absolutely easy. But uh, the gear, yeah, the, they used to joke. They used to joke that um, uh, a high school education in America was class on the third floor. <laughs> I reckon that's spot on. So when you were at Texas Tech, how many students were there? How many were enrolled? It's a relatively big school, wasn't it? 30,000 students. 30,000. Were you somewhat well-known Amongst everyone, not only for your athletic prowess, but also the fact that you were Australian, yeah, were known uh, by most people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. my uh, my in my second year, I actually moved out with a guy called Marcus Washington, who was the captain of the Texas Tech football team. I was just about to say that. Did you do a lot of socialising with the footballers and basketballers? Were you kind of part of that whole? Yeah, no, I was, group? look, I was I was I was really lucky. I was looked after. Um, so you know, if you went out at night time, and and because I was part of that. Um, Sports, you know, I was an athlete. The culture, yep. I was an athlete, um, and not a big guy. Um, those guys really looked after me, so I found myself being looked after by you know bigger guys who who, who liked to play uh, liked to play a bit of golf. So you know, the quarterback at the time, his name was Billy Joe Tolliver, and he got recruited to you know he played in San Diego. I think he ended up going to about uh, three or four clubs, but he always thought himself as a golfer. So I ended up hanging around with Billy Joe Tolliver, and I was helping him with golf. And because of that, he'd help me. When I was out, and you know, you weren't allowed to drink until you were twenty-one, but I, I still managed to get a little blue wristband every yeah, time, everywhere exactly. I went. I was so, just about to say. so all that stuff, and was, no waiting in lines. All that sort of stuff was fantastic. Well. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, no waiting in lines. I can imagine nah. at any nightclubs, just straight through. Nah. All the bouncers knew who you were. No, not even close. Did you go to a lot of football and basketball games? Yeah, I went to as many as I could. I yeah. loved it. I loved it, and not so much loved the game, but I loved being part of that student body. Yeah. And, and that's, that's something that's really hard to explain to people. Like even even to this day, even to this day, if I just need a couple of t-shirts um, to get around home in, you know, to do gardening or go to the gym in, up, I'm yeah. still I know I still go to the Texas Tech website and just get a couple of Texas oh, Tech right. t-shirts. It's because the experience I had at Texas Tech, and for a lot of people, um, the college team or the college you went to, it's like who you barrack for over here in Australia. Yeah. So, you know, you, know, you might barrack for Richmond or Carlton or North Melbourne. With equal passion in America, you will support Texas Tech or you will support TCU or you will support SMU University or Louisiana State or, or whatever school you went to. It's amazing how going to those games, going to the parties, um, you know, graduating and all that kind of stuff, even though I didn't graduate, it it leaves it leaves uh, a lot of these college students with something to connect with. Um, and even though I only went for you know two and two and a bit years, two and two and two and a half years at Texas Tech, uh, the friends I made, I, I still have. And I, I visit them regularly when I'm over and you know going to Augusta, um, and I follow that. I follow the the, the 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 football team. I follow the basketball team. You know, it's just it is it is amazing and hard to explain. But um, you know, I don't have the same allegiance I have to Collingwood to Texas Tech. But I I look at Texas Tech and always look for their scores mm. with fondness because of of how it changed my life. And I think it's I think that's what actually happens when kids finally move out of home. And all these kids in college, you know, you've got thirty thousand. 
18 to 23-year-olds who are out of home for the very first time, basically, and you're away, and you have to rely on each other. You know, no, not many kids actually go to college within driving distance. Everyone kind of wants to get away. And because you're there with all these kids, because you're growing up away from home, because you're depending on each other, and because you go to the football and you're cheering together, it is amazing the connection that you develop with that college. And that's that's the hardest thing for me to explain uh, to anybody who, who asks me about uh, what it was like in college. Would you, obviously, you didn't really know about the college readers you were growing up, and it's still not something that it seems to be that a lot of golfers over here go to college. Would you recommend the college path to Australians who are looking to become uh, a golf pro? Or every is one it kind of, of like a – yeah, every, every, every single one? Every one of them. Right. Every one of them. And it's funny, you know, uh, you know during the week uh, I was with KB talking about uh, the British Open and uh, we always talk on Monday, but uh, this tournament's going to finish on Tuesday our time. And there's a kid called Paul Dunn from Ireland uh, who's an amateur who's leading the tournament after three rounds. So I quickly just did a little bit of research so I'd know what I was talking about. And bang, where did he go? University of Alabama or one of them. One of them. So he did four years there. And here he is. He's developed, understands professional golf, understands how to live away from home. All those things are major factors. So when I see you know kids like Ryan Ruffles and... Uh, you know, all the rest of them, Todd Sinnott, all these guys that were developed by Golf Australia, yeah, they get to play in some big tournaments here and there and blah, 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 but nothing will prepare them for professional golf like the college system. Nothing over here will really give them a plan B, and that's the most important thing. You know, the, the, the one regret that I had was, um, you know, to this day sometimes I have these crazy dreams, like why didn't you get your degree? I mean, these kids now, if you, if you have the right people around you when you get to college, if you can develop your game and get that business degree and get that marketing degree and get that whatever, you can become a doctor, you can do whatever you like. Plan B is so big. It's so big because so many players who dominate the amateur scene get to the pros and they are hopeless. They can't, they can't crack an egg. Mm. They cannot crack an egg. The golf courses, they go from these little dinky places that you might have played in juniors to a little bit bigger where you play collegiate golf to where you get on the main show, you get on the tour, and they are big golf courses with big rough. So not everyone's made for that sort of stuff. Uh, and it's not until you get there and play them week after week after week that you can find out who's got the mental capacity to compete. So the plan B is enormous, Absolutely enormous. But when I see our kids, like I was saying before, Ryan Ruffles, Todd Sinnott, even though they're beautiful golfers and very highly developed, I still say to this day that four years over there, um, fending for yourself, still going to school, developing your game, and playing against 80% of the world's best juniors who are like-minded, there's no other place you can you can get everything done like that. It's a one-stop shop. The only danger is, folks... Um, is it you know little Johnny? You don't want him failing and living in America. That's that's the, that would be the hard mm. bit. Now that I'm a parent, you know, go on halfway across the world and see you later. Yeah. You know, my son Kelly or if Olivia went over there for whatever you know gymnastics or whatever, and we lost Olivia to America, that would be devastating. Yeah. But if you are if you are a a golfer and you want to reach the heights of your profession, then there is no substituting what the American collegiate system provides. Well, we've heard that from guys 
Like Travis Blackley, we've had on the, on the show before, who's a former major league pitcher, still with um, an organization there in the majors. Uh, Josh Spence, who's played major league baseball yeah. before, they both say that the college path is perfect for baseball. Yeah. We've heard that from uh, basketball, basketball players, football yeah. players. We don't really hear that from golf a whole bunch. Is it yeah. something that isn't getting enough recognition at the moment? And that should be. Are a lot of these kids actually going to the states? And if not, why do you think that's the case? Well, I think look, the the Australian Institute of Sport and the Victorian Institute of Sport, they back themselves in to develop these kids right. as they should. Otherwise, they're not going to have jobs. So I think that's really, really good. But I think you'll still have enough kids who who want to stay back and be developed in Australia, or be developed in Victoria, or be developed wherever. Um, but I, I think. From my understanding, and I, I still have um, Greg Sandzier, who's the golf coach at Texas Tech these days, and I've asked some of our very best. I say, you've got a full ride to go to Texas Tech. It's a Division One school. They play in the NCAA championships every year now. They've got uh, a Tom Doak-designed golf course as their home facility. Tom Doak designed St Andrews Beach here in Melbourne that uh, right. we're always given uh, you know, golf for four away yeah, yeah. here at 1116 SEN. So... He's a, it's one, yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic facility to, to to practice and hone your game. So I've offered I've offered that to our best knock back every time. Really, it staggers me, Christos. It staggers me. It staggers me. And you know, the, the best bit is, I whisper to them. I say, hey, "Listen, you don't have to go for four years. Go over there for one year. Get the full ride. Go for one year." And test yourself against these Americans on their golf courses, and just have that in your back pocket as experience. No. They won't do it. They won't do it. So, you know, if they stay back here, yeah, you'll get a hit in the Vic Open and you'll get a hit in the Vic PGA. And, you know, if you play well enough, they might even give you a spot in the Australian Open. But those three tournaments, you know, the Australian Open is a big one. Vic Open's bigger and the Vic PGA, they're all good tournaments. But nothing, nothing will prepare them like these collegiate events. Nothing. And and it's it staggers me. It'd be like, you know, it'd be like, you know, the college system in basketball. Like Texas Tech, we used to have 20,000 people every single game at our basketball. Um, You've got these 18-year-olds playing in front of 20,000 screaming lunatics. A lot of the time it's going to be the biggest crowds that any of them would, be, would it, play in front of. It's like that. Now, I, I reckon the competition's probably the same down here. Uh, it's basketball-wise. I reckon it probably is at the moment. But playing in front of 20,000 people, come on, where else are you going to get that experience? You yeah. need to go to America to get that experience. And it's the same with golf. Even even here, even though you're not going to play in front of 20,000 people, what you will get is 15 tournaments a year, just just in college, 15 tournaments a year, four rounders against the best opposition on the planet. And then in summer, you can play in the US Amateur. You can try and qualify for a US Open. You can do all that sort of stuff. You've got all these other things you can do, and you can get your degree. So in my, in my view, a no-brainer. Adam Scott went to college. He went straight there, went to UNLV for one year. Beautiful. Did that, turned pro. Jason Dale's offered a million of them. Um, Ryan Ruffles probably can do whatever he likes. I mean, he's got his final year of Halebury this year at year 12. But Ryan Ruffles, he'd have every single college in the country chasing him down to come over and play just one year. I'd go and play just two years. So when you went over, how long were you actually looking to go over for? Were you planning I didn't on doing the full four years? No, I, did, I didn't know what I was getting into. And, and um, you know, I was, I was a different character back then to where I, know you're not gonna, I was a very arrogant young man who I, I, I just didn't think anyone was really looking out for me except for me. 
when I look back on what I was doing. So I didn't, you know, even though people were saying stay in school or even though they told me I shouldn't get my HSC, I just, I don't know, I just didn't do it. So um, I didn't go over there with the mindset to get a degree even. I, I went over there to just to play some golf and the, have, a bit of fun. have some fun and get better. And, yeah, that's what I did. And then two and a half years in when I was playing, and you know, I was, I was shooting some really good scores and, uh, you know, tournament records that had been going for 20 years. I was breaking tournament records and, you know, I, wasn't, I was still using wooden clubs and, and iron, so it wasn't like I just came along at the right time when titanium came along. Well, I, was, I was using persimmon woods and ballada balls and carrying my golf bag and, you know, there was nothing really new and I was breaking all these, when I say all of them, when I was breaking tournament records and stuff, then I just, again, I had this belief that I was ready to go and um, I didn't have a plan B. And, you know, that dyslexic mindset was that I just didn't want to go and write stuff down because everything was written. You know, there was no computers. Mm. There was no spell check. I had to write stuff down. And the further I got into it, the less people were willing to do my stuff. So it got to a point where I just said, well, that's that's it. I'm just going to turn pro. I can't go any further here at school. So, and uh, I came home, turned pro. Away we went. Did any of the coaches try to uh, dissuade you from that? Like, did they try to say, no, it's best if you stay uh, in school? Or by that stage, were they kind of resigned to the fact that uh, you were leaving? Oh, uh, Christos, um, I reckon I made that decision after two years. And I reckon I hung around an extra six months just to uh, <laughs> have a bit of a party, to tell you the truth. And they realized so, uh, that? I think the coach, yeah, I think the coach was. Pretty happy to see the enemy, to tell you the truth. I've heard you mention a couple of times that you kind of wished that you had been a part of a sporting team culture, whether you played football or something like that. You've, you, you've yeah. mentioned how you were jealous of these guys who have come through and played a team sport. Yeah. When you were at college, you were a part of a team. Yeah. How was that? And how much did you enjoy that compared to playing on your own? Uh, I still Look, I still speak to all those guys, everyone on that team, so... Um, it means a lot. It means a lot to you. And it's funny, you know, I went to uh, eight different schools when I was at home, so I don't have any of those friends at, at school, but the, the only friends I've got really from my schooling life is from those that golf team at Texas Tech. So, you know, when I hear Ox telling his stories about, you know, what he was doing at Melbourne and, you know, Derm comes in and, you know, you hear all the stories now, close they are and the team reunions. Yeah, it does because, I mean, I, I know I wish I could go and have my team reunion with the guys at Dallas, yeah. but you can't. You can't just pack up and go. Um, but, yeah, I, look, golf, I was lucky to play. I was lucky to play, you know, even at home, right? Even at home, there's only one picture of me in the whole house of <laughs> me um, doing anything in golf, and that was in that under-21 team. Really? Yeah, so the team stuff was great. You know, when I look at that team photo and there's Bradley Hughes who won a couple of Masters and David Diaz who's a multiple winner and Cameron Howe was there and Brad Price was there and I'm in there and there's one other that I'll think of in a tick. Uh, when I look back uh, at, at that team, they, you know, they're great memories. They're great memories. So I don't, there are no photos of anything else I've done up in the house. So there's that one and, and that one alone. So, But the memories really are from... Uh, the Vic State team. The only state team I ever got in was a junior team, um, and uh, and 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 then also uh, the college golf. But it's, it's funny, you know. One of the reasons I left is in that under six, in the under twenty one team. Every player who makes that team gets into the state senior squad. I was the only player who didn't get in that year to the state senior squad. So I, I took that as a real hit. And then, you know, it's almost like Coach uh, Tommy Wilson called about three weeks later and it was just such an easy decision to make. Oh, perfect. So here I was, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't capable of getting in the Victorian state squad, 
uh, two and a half years when I came back after experiencing America, after developing my game just two and a half years, um, I, I went from a player who couldn't get in my state team to pretty much being asked to play for Australia straight off the plane. So I went from from you know two and a half years that the development was wasn't what I would have got here in Australia. Yeah. So as soon as I got back here, that they have these things called Australian selection events. So Riversdale Cups an Australian selection event. The ACT Amateurs an Australian selection event. So. Um, I won a couple. As soon as I got off the plane, I won a couple of the little tournaments around town. I was winning them by a mile. They asked me to play Victoria in the ACT Amateur Championship as a two-man squad, myself and Paul Maloney, and I ended up winning that one by four or five shots um, at Royal Canberra. And then not long after that, I was asked to play for Australia, which I said no to because I was turning pro. I should yeah. have played for Australia. So that's another that's regret another you got? Another regret. I right. should have played. I should have that green blazer in my cupboard still. In mothballs. <laughs> I still should have that blazer. But I just didn't. I wanted to turn pro. So if we go back to Texas Tech, what was – run us through, I guess, a week in the life of you as a collegiate athlete. How many hours a day would you practice? How many would you have to dedicate, if any, to, to studies? What was it like? <sighs> All right. Well, look, when I first got there, it was the, the schooling was really easy. All right. It was just kind of a feeling out process. Um, and I didn't have a car, so uh, we organised. Surely it. they provided you with one. Uh, well, in summer they did. I used to get a car, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> in uh, during during that first couple of semesters, um, I'd organise all my classes so they would be in the morning. Uh, then one of the teammates would pick you up and take you straight to the golf course where you would practice and then play. Uh, and the first semester I had to qualify, but qualifying became pretty simple. So in the end, I didn't have to qualify. And that was probably the, uh, a bad idea because when I left Australia, Christos, I wasn't a drinker and I wasn't a partier at you all. Weren't. No, I wasn't. Not when I left Australia. Uh, about, Thank you, Texas Tech. About six months in until uh, I knew. So uh, if that, it was kind of a bad thing that I, I had to stop qualifying because it made, it, so, it made life so easy. So I would go to class, I would come and practice, I'd play nine holes, and then I'd go out on a date or... Or I'd be a you know bash rip rocks having a having some kind of margarita. I don't know what was going on. So that would happen on Monday, on Tuesday night, it would be the same thing. On Wednesday, the same. And it was almost a relief to go away and play a tournament because I never used to. <laughs> I never used to drink away on the tournaments. I never, never at any stage really would I have a drink before or drink during a week um, when there was something on the line. But you know, if there was something off the line, yeah, I developed a a drinking and partying culture and like there is in college it's one of the other things is why everyone looks back at their days in college fondly because yeah, there's not much everyone, wrong with that. everyone has a drink everyone bonds in different ways mind you <laughs> and um you know you, you look back on those days really fondly but the school like i said the schooling was easy the golf was a piece of cake for me to get in the team there wasn't much left there for me to do other than go out and get that 20 minute head start as many places <laughs> i could do you have a favorite thing about college was there anything that kind of Sticks out here. Yeah, the way the, the way uh, you know the way the athletes were treated was, was unbelievable. I went from um, I went from being uh, you know a kid at Oakley Tech um, to a almost you know a, a big guy on campus pretty quickly. Once once you start, you know every every college has got the newspaper and you know my my picture was on the back page a bit, and um, you know you get around just people knowing your name and people knowing you're Australian and. Call All that kind mate. of stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. One, one, one time, um, I was out the front uh, with some of the uh, with the footballers, 
and uh, they were throwing the ball around and they threw it to me and you know just because I've played footy all my life you take you know a grab it's above your head you just take the grab and I just drop pumped it straight back <laughs> on his chest and they were he just caught the ball in his chest and they're just all looking around going what and they threw the ball to me again. I just took it over and I kicked it, drop punt straight back on the chest. You know, like, and you say like, you weren't a good like footy player. Every, like every kid can do, right? Like every, like you can do. Christos, I've seen you in the Left breaks. Left footed as well. Yeah, I've seen you in the breaks. Everyone always does it. You can hit anyone on the chest. If I was on the other side of the, of, of the, of the road over there, 40 yards away, I reckon you could hit me on the chest. So everybody can. And, uh, you know, I was pretty relaxed and just did that. And then I got a phone call from Coach Spike Dykes. His name Spike was Spike Dykes. Dykes. Co- Coach Spike name. Dykes. He called my dorm room and, they said, and he said, Hey, I hear you can kick the ball, Ozzy. Ozzy boy. That's <laughs> what he said. Hey, Ozzy boy. I hear you can kick the ball. I want you to come down and try out. So I tried out for the Texas Tech punting team, but no, I was so you, a stick, you could have been one of the first punters. I was over a stick. There. I was a stick. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Um, it, it was the same back then. The guy who actually had the spot on the team, he was made to compete for his spot the next semester, and this guy was dropping the ball from nose height and spitting it at the same time, spinning the ball trying to hit kick uh, big Tories. I mean, it was a joke. So, yeah, you know, I went into my little – they said, show us how far you can kick the ball, and then show us how high you can kick the ball. And uh, well, uh, to be honest, I wasn't the best uh, torpedo-type kick. I could kick the top Do you know punt. how far you could kick it? Ah, oh, not very far. <laughs> but I could kick it further than the, the guy who was punting, and I was more reliable than him, and I actually showed the punter. I said, you shouldn't do that. I said, because I reckon they should kick a – like I reckon most of us um, – a banana kick. If you kick the banana kick really, <laughs> really high – it just floats up there forever, and like all of a sudden, can you the punt return guy? Wouldn't know he's looking, he's looking at this banana kick coming his way. He wouldn't know what happened. <laughs> so um, my hang time was only like yeah you know, three and a half, four seconds or something. I might have got one though, something that was half respectable. Yeah, uh, but the others weren't much good. But the guy who had the job at Texas Tech, he was hopeless, hopeless. That's Most hopeless kicker I've well, ever Well, they never really put in too much focus in the punting team. Only recently has it kind of become something yeah. where people are you know, having pride in their punting stocks. But I'm assuming at that time, no one really cared too much. Nah. So no, you could have been a dual deal. athlete. You could have been a punter and a golfer. <laughs> no, no. I was never going to do that. I was never going to do that. They were too big, mate. They were too big. Oh, I mean, they, were, they were so big. And that's, that, that's when you see them in – like you eat with them. You know, there, there is the student dining hall. And there was one, you know, it, it, there was, I don't know, there must have been a dozen 20-story high-rises on campus um, that were dorm rooms. And then, of course, there was the athletes' dorm. And then there was uh, student dining, and then there was athletic dining. <laughs> so um, all the athletes, and I was a golfer, so it counts, so we would all eat in the same joint. And, mate, they were so big. They were so big I couldn't believe it. They were so big, I couldn't believe it. There was one guy, I'll, I'll never forget it, one day that um, the football team had a big win over Texas A&M, which was uh, the big rival. I mean, everyone, everyone's a rival of Texas A&M. They're like Collingwood, right? Everyone hates Collingwood. So everyone hates Texas, Texas A&M, and they had this big win on um, whatever it was, a Saturday or the Sunday night or whatever it was. So to celebrate the next day, they had this huge feast, this barbecue chicken feast. Oh. So they brought in these huge plates, Huge plates, and you know, I don't even call them plates. I don't know what you'd call them. These huge, um, I don't know, they could carry it, looked like it was a hundred pieces of chicken on there. 
and they'll put it on the table, and everyone was, everyone was, you know, looking just around, trays, just trays you know, of food, yeah. Yeah, but they, everyone had to say grace first, right? Okay? That's one of the things they had to do. So that all this chicken would go down, and before we said grace, this huge linebacker, massive, massive linebacker, put his finger in his mouth. And said, that one's mine, and wiped his finger on it. <laughs> Did it again, that one's mine, that one's mine. And kept on putting his fingers back in his mouth, trying to save all the good bits, right? Anyway, we're all going, what are you doing? You know, not me, I was too small. But yeah, the, rest of are, the rest of them are going crazy. And the captain, Marcus Washington, he saw what happened. And he came over and said, what was this guy's name? I don't know, let's just say his name was Bubba, right? He said, Bubba, what the hell are you doing? He said, that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine. And then Marcus Washington put his finger in the mouth and said, you can have it, you can have it, you can have it, and wiped his. <laughs> so, you know, the stuff that was happening, the stuff that was happening was very funny in that athletic dining hall. But the one thing that I will never forget is how big they were. They were so big. They were the biggest men you could ever imagine. And they were only and 18 college kids, yeah. or 19 or 20 years old. And, then, you know, we had a couple. We had two seven-footers on the basketball team. One guy's name was A Train. He, he was a rapper. A Train. A Train. He called himself. <laughs> he was a rapper. Oh, that's unreal. That's it's unreal. I've got pictures at home. I should. I should. Yeah, bring him in. Bring him in. Him in. Do can, sort you of do stuff. whatever you want. So once you uh, finished up at Texas Tech, you became pro. What was next for you there? What was happening? Uh, well, you just had to go. Well, back in Australia, so I, I was lucky to get uh, a little bit of funding from Huntingdale. Just a, uh, you know, some businessmen got together and, and put some money down, and um, I went to the tour school and got my card first up. And I remember the very first tournament I played was the um, Air New Zealand Shell Open at a golf course called Titarangi, which uh, you know is a, is a very it's a famous golf course in New Zealand. And I remember coming down to the seventy second hole, and I played okay. I was going to come about twelfth, um, and it was a it was a three iron or a three wood and a sand iron hole. And the second shot was a shot straight up a hill. It was a blind shot. And I hit the three wood pretty well and got over my sand nine. And all I had to do was knock it on the green. I've had a great first tournament and I knocked it in the hole. <laughs> the crowd went crazy. Um, and I finished tied for sixth in my very first ever tournament as a professional. So from that moment, that, that point, everything I had done in my mind validated everything yeah. that I, or every choice that It'll I had come made. Together. Every choice that I had made at that point was like, yes. You know, stuff plan B, stuff plan B. Don't I don't need, need plan B. I'm going to finish in the top 10 for the rest of my life and hang out with don't movie stars. Read, don't need to write. Nah. Become the Floyd Mayweather of boxing. Of, uh, of golf. Over. Yeah. Doesn't matter. And I missed the next 15 cuts in a row. <laughs> so it was so. at that stage where you, got, um, where you made that shot, do you think that was where you were the most confident in your uh, golfing career? Nah. Or, or at what stage do you think you're most confident and, and at what stage do yeah. you think that you you were the best? Well, I was, tre- I was treading water. I was treading water and um, uh, I played reasonably well. I made a cut in, the, in, a Victoria, in, a, in an Australian PGA and, and if you made the cut, uh, again, back in 1992, if you made the cut in the tournament preceding the Australian Open or preceding any of our tournaments here in Australia, you got in straight into the next week. So I made that cut, which was important. And... The Australian Open in 92, there were some huge names, like big players. You know, it used to be a massive event. And um, I, was hit, I was hitting the ball poorly, and Mike Clayton was a friend of mine. He said, come down and have a look at Raymond Floyd. Now, Raymond Floyd, multiple major winner, superstar of the game. And he said, look at this guy. Look at his swing. He said, your swing's every bit as good as that. And, you know, Raymond Floyd was taking it way inside, and knees and elbows going everywhere. And I thought, oh, well, let's just try and make a swing. So I made the swing, and... 
somehow that week I finished uh, sixth by myself. So it was a big check. It was my first ever big check. Uh, the very next week at Royal Melbourne at Johnny Walker Classic, I shot 70 the first round, 66 in the second round, and found myself in the last group. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, on the third day, ended up finishing about 15th. But then there was some exposure to you know, not only being uh, in the last group on the weekend, but also TV time and back on the pages and on the back page of the Herald Suns and stuff. And then after Christmas, finished uh, tied fifth in the Masters and, and you know, I had the number one and number two player in the world. They finished uh, behind me sixth and seventh. So at that point, I went had my highest ever ranking. Um, but it was also at that point where... I knew the way that I hit the ball compared to the best players on earth, then I had a long way to go. And everyone was making changes to their golf swings back in, in those days. So, you know, I, I for the first time I saw my golf swing on TV uh, and what it looked like uh, in a tournament. It looked really bad. Um, but I had enough poise and, you know, I could putt and chip and I was, you know, I was the greatest bugger player who ever lived, Christos, you know that. <laughs> so I could do all that. I had all that nailed and had pause, uh, enough uh, poise to play in those situations. But compared to the best players, I hit the ball short and crooked. So I started changing my swing back then in 1992. Um, you know, I was young enough and arrogant enough to think that, you know, I could do it and I would be one of the best players in the world. And... Um, I'm just starting to get the hang of those swing changes now, buddy. <laughs> now, just before we finish up, because we've pretty much run out of time, yeah. you've now got uh, your golf tour company, Chasing Birdies. Yep. When did this come into existence and what kind of gave you the idea? Was it kind of just an opportunity to go out, watch golf and drink? I don't know. I was this radio station. So, look, when I finished playing golf, I always said that I would never finish, I would never play golf if I couldn't finish in the top 60 in Australia. If you couldn't finish in the top 60 here, then you are a butcher. A butcher, Christos. So, uh, in 2003, it happened to me for the first time, you know, in, in the 14 or 15 years that I was a professional. So I stopped. So that was December 2003. January 2004, guess what? I got a phone call to do a golf show at a little sports radio station called SEN. Could you do one on Wednesday nights? I said, well, I'm not doing anything else, mate. Let's let's have a crack. Um, and it wasn't long before that, you know, I was doing stuff with KB that year and uh, my friend David Wren gave me a call and said, listen, I'm going to start taking people to America and I've only got four people. He said, could you get me on with KB and we'll have a chat about it? So I got him on with KB and we spoke about the Masters and how good it is and he got a dozen people sign up the very next week. So he went over and came back that, and he said, hey, listen, maybe we better do this together. So we've been in business ever since and we love it. We love taking people every single year to, to Augusta. You know, a lot of people dream about getting there and Tickets are impossible to get just about, and we can guarantee the tickets and, and a great time. So that's been a great, fun part of my life as well. And Chasing Birds is still on every Wednesday as well? Every week, mate. Every single week. I can't believe it is still going. I think I'm halfway. I think we've got – we're almost – we're halfway between 500 and 600 shows at the moment. Yeah, you know, I, I started numbering the shows at the start because I didn't think it would last. <laughs> I didn't think it would last, and I thought, oh, at least, you know, on my resume at some stage, I'll be able to say that I did 34, 40 shows. Yeah. Whatever, I did forty shows, so we've done five hundred and fifty odd, maybe Obviously close to five hundred and sixty it. shows. It's good fun, um, and it's great that uh, Mark Fine lets us talk about it, talk about golf every week. Absolutely, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us on the Flag Flies, mate. Really appreciate your time, and uh, everyone can listen to you like they always came Mondays through Thursdays, four to seven. Good on you, Christos. Big fan of the program. Keep it up, mate. I'm uh, loving uh, SN America as well. Thanks, bud.